if you haven't done so already, grab a Bible and turn with me to John chapter 20. John 20, we're going to start reading in verse 24 this morning. And today we look at a, at a third occasion when Jesus appeared to his disciples following his, his resurrection. Right? He was crucified, buried, and then three, on the third day he rose again. And in our journey through John's gospel, uh, we've already seen Jesus appear to Mary Magdalene the morning of his resurrection. Uh, and then on that same day, later that evening, Jesus appears to ten of his eleven remaining disciples. One of those disciples, though, was absent. He was missing on that occasion, a disciple named Thomas. And Jesus wants Thomas as well. And so in our passage today, Jesus appears to Thomas now. And as we shall see, Thomas is initially full of doubt and skepticism about whether Jesus is truly alive. And we can very well understand why. I mean, it's not so much that Thomas doubted because he was ignorant of God's ability to raise the dead. He knew the God of Scripture could do miracles, and he had witnessed firsthand Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's also not so much that Thomas doubted because he, he morally opposed the idea of Jesus' resurrection so that he could just sort of live life the way he wanted. No, again and again, we, we actually find Thomas very loyal to Jesus. Uh, he, he's even willing to die for him at one point. He certainly doesn't understand everything about Jesus, but he's still loyal. He's willing to learn. He's willing to follow. What's more likely the case is that Thomas doubts because he's been thoroughly disappointed. The man he so loyally followed, the man he left everything for the last three years, the man who claimed to be his Savior, his, his Messiah, was crucified and buried in a tomb. All his hopes are seemingly undone at this point, and so he becomes a skeptic to protect himself from being hurt more than he's already hurting. He wants reasonable grounds to believe his Savior actually lives rather than suffering even greater disappointment. Some of your doubt and skepticism, I imagine, rises from the same sort of disappointment with Jesus. I'm talking to disciples today like Thomas. You pray, and Jesus doesn't seem to answer your prayers, and in your disappointment you begin to doubt whether he even cares. You labor to preach the gospel to others, but, but they're not converted, and in your disappointment you begin doubting Jesus' power to save. You give yourself to others as, as Jesus teaches you to give and get nothing back in return and sometimes even rebuffed. And in your disappointment, you want to quit. You want to build walls. You want to protect yourself. Friends, doubting Jesus isn't far from us either when we're disappointed. 
And what we'll see today is that Jesus comes to Thomas. He comes to doubters like us. He meets us where we are, and He reveals Himself so that we believe, so that we have life in His name. He doesn't come to us in the same way He came to Thomas, of course, but He still comes to transform doubters into disciples and skeptics into saints and worriers into worshipers. Let's read this together in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And we pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is good. And I pray that it would leave us with encouragement today and great promise and hope. Reveal to us more of Christ, that we might take confidence in Him, now risen from the dead and reigning in heaven. And we ask it in His name. Amen. What I'd like to do is take four steps this morning in understanding the passage before us. And, and with each step, my hope is, is not only that you gain a better understanding of John's overall message, but, but that you also encounter the person of Jesus himself through this unique encounter with Thomas. Step number one. Our passage reveals the purpose of John's gospel. Our passage reveals the purpose of John's gospel. When I was in high school, I wasn't much into reading novels. Well, I actually wasn't much on reading at all, um, to my great regret. But something I had, I had to know up front was what the point of the story was. What's the author trying to say? What is his goal? Why is it even important I read, read this book? And a lot of times that meant I skimmed through the final chapters to figure it out before reading anything, maybe even purchase the Cliff Notes, maybe the movie, which is probably sacrilegious to some of you. But anyway, we've arrived at that place in John's Gospel where he lays all his cards on the table. Yes, John is telling a story about Jesus, 
That's been fairly easy to see as, as we've been going through John's gospel. But, but notice that he's not interested in, in mere information transfer. He's not interested in merely passing along information about Jesus, passing along facts about Jesus that, that leave you unchanged, that leave you the same as when you entered his story. No, John writes to compel faith in you, to compel faith in Jesus Christ and to give life to his readers in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's teaching us how to read his gospel. A proper reading of John's gospel will be one in which we seek to deepen our faith in Jesus. It will be one in which we drink from these pages to actually experience life with God's Son. We won't be coming to them first with our own purposes and agendas, you know, to fix our marriage and to fix our children and to fix our church and to defend our doctrines and to prove our political viewpoints and to, to understand more about ancient Judaism. Those purposes can certainly provide worthwhile questions to ask of the Gospel of John. But those purposes must never cloud that of the author himself, or even better, that of God himself, who is writing and has inspired these words through the Apostle John. John's primary purpose and God's primary purpose is that we gain life by believing this story about Jesus. In fact, his purpose is even more serious than that, isn't it? His purpose isn't to provide more life to a life that you already have. Jesus isn't just, life with Jesus isn't just an add-on to the life you already have. No, his purpose is to provide life, period, by giving you Jesus. You see, part of John's story is that by nature we don't have life. We have sinned against God, we have done wrong, and we sit in death separated from God. That's what death is. It is separation from life with God and from fellowship with God. We sit in this death because of our sins. But the story John tells is meant to give you faith in Jesus. And when your faith is in Jesus, you're delivered out of death and you find true life with God. In that sense, believing John's story is remarkably different from believing any other story you might hear on the street or find on the shelf in Barnes & Noble. Believing John's story about Jesus is a matter of life and death. But how could John's story, the story we're reading, how could it carry such weight? such utter seriousness. Well, John's story can do so because John knows that his story is true. That leads us to step two. Our passage reveals that John's testimony is true. Our passage reveals that John's own testimony that he's writing, that he's writing out here is true. Uh, we see this in the way the account of Thomas 
uh, with, with Thomas here, plays out alongside Jesus' earlier appearance uh, to the other ten disciples. The account with Thomas ends up confirming the trustworthiness of the other disciples who, who tell Thomas that Jesus is alive. John is one of those that tell Thomas Jesus is alive earlier. So, so here's how it goes. Eight days before we get here to Thomas, Jesus rises from the dead and appears to ten of the eleven disciples. Thomas is the only one missing. And at some point, according to verse 25, those ten disciples go and tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. So we get one of the first times the disciples bear witness to Christ's resurrection, and immediately it's met with doubt and skepticism, even by, by somebody within the eleven. Thomas doubts their testimony, and, and, he, and he then sets the conditions for his belief. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Cut to Jesus shows up, addresses Thomas's doubt. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He sees what the other ten saw earlier. And he believes. In other words, it's not like the other ten put Thomas in a mercy hold until he finally came in. Go along with us, man, or else. No, Thomas sees what they saw, and he believes. How does that serve John's testimony? It serves John's testimony by confirming that his earlier testimony to Thomas wasn't a lie, it wasn't a dream. It wasn't a hallucination. It was real and true and verifiable, so verifiable that even a skeptic can't help but worship when Jesus comes to him. And Jesus' real presence will be just as compelling when he returns to this earth in the same body and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By putting these accounts side by side, John helps us see that he's telling the truth about Jesus risen from the dead. And if he's telling the truth about Jesus risen from the dead, he's telling that everything else he said about Jesus is true as well. Something very important for Christians to remember is that the resurrection of Jesus is not a religious claim. It is a historical claim. You say that again. The resurrection of Jesus is not a religious claim. It is a historical claim that we are making. Jesus didn't just rise in our hearts. His resurrection isn't just a mythological story from which we then glean timeless truths to live by. God Almighty actually entered history in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus then died for our sins, and then He really walked out of the grave alive on the third day. This makes Christianity vastly different from the majority of other religions. All that matters to most religions is whether the experience holds true, regardless of historical verification. Christianity is dependent on its historical claims. As the Bible says elsewhere, if Jesus Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. In other words, Christians are pathetic people if Jesus isn't really alive. 
But as we see here, Jesus is in fact alive. Jesus is not just an idea. He's a real person with flesh and bones. The way John pieces these accounts together helps confirm the trustworthiness of John's testimony. We have seen the Lord, and then Thomas's experience comes in and basically says, you were right. You guys really did see the Lord. I now believe too. So John's testimony is true. If John's testimony is true, then just like Thomas, we're all faced with whether to believe who Jesus really is and give ourselves to him. That takes us to step three. Step three, our passage also reveals more about who Jesus is more about who Jesus is. We'll see several things here. The first is very straightforward at this point. Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. He's alive. That's, that's the whole point of his physical appearances to the disciples. Uh, he, he's, not a, he's not risen as a ghost of some sort. He, he appears to the disciples in a physical body. It's certainly a new body, it's a body suited for glory. It's a body characterized by immortality. But it's still a physical body that, that has some degree of continuity with his old body. Jesus had to tell Mary earlier, stop clinging to me. Uh, here, Jesus uh, still carries the marks in his hands and in his side from the cross uh, to show that it's the same persons the Romans had crucified. He, he tells Thomas, reach out your hands and touch. Touch me. Touch them. Put your hand here in my side. Later on, he'll fix the disciples some fish and, and eat with them. The, the point couldn't be clearer. Jesus is risen bodily from the dead. Well, that also means that Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. We see this uh, by branching out to the larger storyline of John's gospel. Uh, Jesus has been making all sorts of claims, not just about himself, but also about what, what he would do to overcome sin and death. He's been telling the disciples that he would be lifted up on the cross to, and die for our sins, but, but then he would rise and, again and, and he would see the disciples then. The Jews, he tells the Jews, uh, destroy the temple of my body, and, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. Uh, later on in chapter 10, he's the good shepherd. He's going to lay his life down for the sheep and, and then take his life up again. He has authority to take his life up again. And sure enough, here he is three days later alive. He's a man of his word. He is faithful. But intertwined in this storyline of Jesus' faithfulness comes a, the repeated refrain that he would lose none of his disciples. That he would lose none of his disciples. Judas, of course, went out to fulfill the Scriptures, but the remaining 11 that have stood by Jesus' side, Jesus is not going to lose these. He, he tells them, I, I, I will lose nothing of all that the Father has given me. No one's going to snatch his sheep out of his hand. He guards his disciples. He keeps his disciples in the Father's name. He, he gives them eternal life. He, he's not going to lose one of them. 
Well, that faithfulness is illustrated once again in a very personal way here. Thomas is doubting his Lord's word. Thomas is skeptical of the other disciples' testimony. And so the question rises, will Jesus lose Thomas? The answer is no. He's not going to lose Thomas either. In the midst of Thomas's doubt and skepticism, Jesus comes to Thomas. Jesus proves his faithfulness to all his disciples. He will not lose one of them. Their own doubts won't stop Jesus from coming to them. Even their own fears behind locked doors can't stop Jesus from coming to them. He will meet you where you are with unstoppable power. So you can write that one down too. Jesus is unstoppable. He's risen. He's faithful. He is unstoppable. Note verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. This is the second time we've seen this. They're locked because they're they're fearing the Jews. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Note his miraculous entry. The doors were locked and Jesus came and stood among them. Now, the New Testament never tells us how Jesus actually came and stood among them with a physical body, even though the doors were locked. Some have speculated that he passed through the wall. He was able to dematerialize and materialize at will, but the Bible never says that. It could also be that Jesus simply kept the disciples from recognizing him like he did on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24. Maybe the door miraculously opened for Jesus like it did for Peter when he escaped from prison in Acts chapter 12. The fact is that we're simply not told how this happened, but only that it did happen and it was nothing short of miraculous. And what it reveals about Jesus is that he is unstoppable. Nothing will stop him from coming to his disciples. Nothing will get in the way of his purposes. Nothing can keep him from revealing himself to them and winning them and drawing them to himself. When Jesus does come to Thomas, notice that Jesus is also all-knowing. Jesus is all-knowing. Another word Christians will sometimes use for this uh, Uh, for for all-knowing is omniscient. Jesus is omniscient. Look at verse 25. Thomas tells only the other disciples, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Then eight days later, Jesus comes, says, peace be with you. Thomas uh, turns to Thomas and says, put your finger here. And see my hands. Put out your hand, Thomas, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Who 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 told Jesus Thomas's doubts? The point is nobody. Jesus doesn't need our help in telling him what's going on inside of us. He simply knows us. His knowledge of us is perfect and and exhaustive and immediate. There's nothing about us he does not know. 
As David says elsewhere in the Psalms, you, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, O Lord. You discern my thoughts from afar. You, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with, with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Earlier in, in the Gospel of John, we saw uh, Jesus, it says this of Jesus, Jesus knew all people and He needed no one to bear witness about man for He Himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew Thomas and Jesus knows you. Jesus knows how you may doubt Him. Jesus knows your skepticism. Jesus knows the depths of your unbelief and the complexities of your sins against Him. He knows what you think about. He knows how the disappointments of this broken world sit on you in the night. He knows your tears, and He knows the knots in your throat when you want to give up. Jesus knows you even better than you know yourself. And this is a perfect portrait of how He meets us. Even knowing us, even knowing our doubts and our unbelief and our pride and our sin, He meets us. He, he comes to His own. You remember the woman at the well and Jesus' conversation with her. He says, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. He knows us. He knows us. But did that prevent him from coming to the woman at the well? No, he pursues her. He comes to her to give her and to offer her life in himself. He's doing the same for Thomas. Which reveals something further about Jesus. Jesus is merciful to doubters. Jesus is merciful to doubters. He is merciful to doubters and He's merciful to disappointed skeptics. He meets us where we are and He addresses our unbelief head on to change us and to give us life in Himself. Think about all that Thomas knew and, and yet still doubted Jesus' resurrection. As a Jew, Thomas knew the Old Testament Scriptures, and, and according to Jesus, those Old Testament Scriptures promised that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Thomas ought to have believed God's Word all along had he been understanding them rightly. That's basically what John says back in chapter 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. Thomas also had all the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus told Thomas what was going to happen to him even before it happened. Jesus even illustrated His power over death by raising Lazarus from the grave. And, and Thomas was there. And now Thomas had heard from his closest friends, we have seen the Lord. He had the Scriptures, he had Jesus, and he had his closest friends telling him what's going on. And he still doubted. 
Very easily, Jesus could have written Thomas off. Jesus had every right to punish Thomas for his unbelief, his doubt. Jesus had every right to cut him off from the other ten. I mean, yeah, from the other ten. But what does he do? He comes to Thomas, speaks to Thomas's doubts, and he says, Look at my wounds, Thomas. Touch my wounds. These are the wounds that paid the penalty for Thomas's sins a week before. These are the wounds that forgive all Thomas's unbelief. These are the wounds that Jesus bore to make Thomas his own. And it's in seeing the crucified and the risen Lord of glory that Thomas is changed from an unbeliever to a believer, from a doubter to a disciple, from a skeptic to a saint, and from a worrier to a worshiper. What is Thomas's response in verse 28? My Lord and my God. You can write that down too as something more our passage reveals about Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. As has been the case throughout John's Gospel, it's in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus that God reveals Himself as He is. When Thomas sees Jesus, he sees God Almighty he got glimpses of Jesus' glory beforehand. He, he heard Jesus saying things just days before, like, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, but now he sees completely my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't reject him. He accepts Thomas's confession. He accepts his belief as right and good. Have you believed because you have seen me? Stated as a question here, it can also be translated as a statement. You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those. In other words, good, Thomas. What changed Thomas? The presence of the merciful God whose wounds and whose life speak redemption over his soul. It was happening just as Jesus said it would. Earlier in chapter 8, Jesus says this, I told you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And we, if you remember, I am is a reference to Jesus being God Almighty. Then he says this, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. You will know that I am God. And here, Jesus has been lifted up, not only on the cross to die for our sins, He has been lifted up from the grave, and Thomas sees that Jesus is the great I Am, my Lord and my God, something that's only applied to Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. One of the greatest confessions in the Bible comes from the mouth of one of the greatest doubters. Notice something more of the nature of Thomas's confession. He says, my Lord and my God. Not our Lord and our God. 
D.A. Carson writes this in his uh, little book, Scandalous. It says, Thomas's confession is intensely personal here. It is never enough merely to confess the truth of something that is out there in the public arena. Even the devil himself could affirm, however begrudgingly, that Jesus is both Lord and God. But a true child of God is making more than a public statement about a public truth. The Christian is not simply affirming that Jesus Christ is the Lord and God of the universe, but in the most intimate sense, He is the Christian's Lord and God. The confession is intensely personal. If you cannot utter the words of this confession with similar, deeply personal commitment, you have no part of Jesus and the salvation that flows from His death and resurrection. Your heart and mind must confess with wonder, my Lord and my God. And here is where I want us to take our last step, step number four. Our passage reveals that the blessing of life in Christ isn't limited to those like Thomas and the disciples who saw Jesus' resurrection body firsthand. The blessing of life in Christ is actually extended to you and me. It's extended to everybody who picks up the Gospel of John and, and reads it and says, My Lord and my God. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, If you believe because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, meaning have not seen his physical resurrection body and yet have believed. Jesus is talking about the time when he's taken up to heaven. When He ascends to the Father, He won't be around to appear to people bodily anymore. For a long season, the only access people will have to Jesus is through the testimony of the disciples. He's talking about you and me believing even without seeing with our physical eyes. That doesn't mean our faith is blind. Or irrational, our faith is perfectly rational. Our faith is based on the reasonable evidence accessed through this eyewitness testimony. When we believe their testimony, we are blessed. Blessed with what? Blessed with fellowship with God. How is it that when we can... That we can still receive this blessing if we cannot actually see Jesus? We can still receive the blessing of life in Christ because the Apostle's Word, or better, God's Word, is sufficient to bring us into a relationship with Christ. This is why John links, links Jesus' blessing in verse 29 with the purpose of his gospel in verses 30 to 31. Verse 31 should begin with therefore. The ESV doesn't have it, but a lot of other English translations do. Therefore, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life 
in his name. That is linked to verse 29. So I want you to hear the, con con the connection. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Therefore, these are written so that you may believe. You get the connection? Blessed, Jesus says, are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Therefore, these are written. These right here in your Bible. These are written so that you may believe. As my brother Jonathan recently put it, Jesus' purpose in coming to earth is also John's purpose in writing his gospel. Namely, that we get eternal life in Jesus Christ. John wrote that we might believe and have eternal life. Jesus came to earth for the same reason. That we might believe in Him and have eternal life. John's words are trustworthy access to Jesus Christ, the Almighty God, to know Him, to love Him, and to enjoy Him. So do you believe John's testimony? And if you believe John's testimony, is the Bible precious to you? Is it indispensable? for you. It is how we see Jesus until He comes again, folks. It's how our faith is born, and it's how our faith keeps growing as we see more and more and more of Jesus with both elbows on either side of this book. And when we see more of Jesus through the Word, we have life in His name. That's another way of saying we have fellowship with God. The true blessing here isn't, isn't, isn't that we'll be happy in, in some way that's disconnected from God's revelation in Christ. The true blessing is that we'll be happy by through knowing God in Jesus Christ. God will not be an idea we just affirm, but, but a person we actually enjoy, Jesus Christ Himself. Based on John's testimony and Jesus' blessing, I think we can all see how important the Bible is. It is our only access to Jesus, and it is only these words that have power to create faith. This is why the primacy of the Word of God must be upheld in our homes and in our church. Where the Word is absent, Jesus will be absent. Where the Word is not esteemed, Jesus will not be seen. Where the word is diminished, Jesus will not look glorious. This is why the apostles put elders in all the local churches they planted to teach the word and deacons to serve alongside the elders so that the word of God might be upheld and remain central and instructed the older women to disciple the younger women so that the word of God might go undefiled and why husbands wash their wives with the word and parents raise their children according to the word and why the word of Christ must dwell richly in our hearts as a people together as we speak and admonish one another with all wisdom and and grace. The Word is how we know Jesus Christ. And so I'm calling all of us to evaluate whether the Word is taking primary place in your life. Are you being mastered by the Word of God? Is it, is it often found upon your lips with one another? Is it your meditation day and night? If not, then Jesus will be far away and unclear and we will spiral into our doubts without any confirmation of promise and hope. Until He comes again, He has left us His written Word. Read it. 
study it, talk about it with each other so that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Moreover, encourage one another with the same words that we might together see him and value him above all. Take these words into the lives of your neighbors that they too might see Jesus as we have seen Jesus. And one more thing. Let me encourage you who doubt from some level of disappointment. You don't need to fear bringing your doubts to the Lord and confessing them to Him. You don't need to fear bringing your doubts to each other and confessing them to one another. Talking about them, mulling them over. What are those, obje what are those objections the world is raising against your faith? What are the objections your own flesh is raising against Christ? What are the lies the enemy is telling you to believe over the truth of Jesus Christ? You don't need to fear bringing your skepticism into the light and your doubts into the light and confessing them. Jesus already knows them and He's already made provision for them. We can draw near to Him for deeper and stronger faith because He has already drawn near to us. Moreover, He is truly risen from the dead. His resurrection is an unchangeable, objective fact. It's never going away. Alongside the cross, Jesus' resurrection becomes the God's decisive answer to all our disappointments. We may not understand all God is up to at times, but His resurrection says that our worst enemies, sin and death, are defeated. The enemy, Satan himself, is crushed under the heel of Jesus Christ. We may continue wondering why this or that prayer remains unanswered, but the resurrection means that all our prayers will eventually be answered on the last day. We may still wonder whether, uh, some days, whether the gospel is truly powerful to save our neighbors, but the resurrection means that Jesus will, in fact, gather all of his elect without fail. We may find ourselves perplexed many days, but the resurrection means we need not be driven to despair. God's story has a very, very good ending. It's true, Jesus doesn't promise to come to you like he did to Thomas. In his, body, in his resurrection body. But we have to say, according to the rest of Scripture, that is only true for a little while longer. He has promised to appear to us face to face one day, and that will be a glorious day when we see Him as He is. But until then, He reveals Himself in the words of the apostles and the prophets. Moreover, he does say elsewhere that, that the way he comes to you now is even better than what the disciples themselves knew at this point. As he said in chapter 16, it is to your advantage. It is for your good that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. So it's not that Jesus is absent. He's very much present. As the Holy Spirit mediates His presence to us now. As the Holy Spirit comes and awakens us to the words of Scripture and the truth that is here written about Jesus. 
And until we see Jesus again, the Spirit and the written Word is our guarantee that He is alive and that He is coming again. If you wonder whether that faith, the kind of faith that is with outside, is, is really able to bless you through, through this life, a life with all kinds of hardships and, and suffering, then, then hear the words of Peter as he reflects on, on one early church in the midst of suffering and pain and hardship. Listen to the intimacy this church shares with Jesus, even though they cannot see him. This is from 1 Peter chapter 1. He writes, In this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You, note, notice that before I keep reading. You have been grieved by various trials. And then he says this, though you have not seen Jesus, you still love him. Though you do not see Jesus now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is John chapter 20 on the ground in a real church. The church is suffering. Grief is present. They still don't see Jesus, but they believe in him. They love him based on the trustworthy testimony of the disciples. And what is the result? The result is joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The result is that they obtain, that they will obtain the salvation of their souls. May God be pleased to keep us trusting these words as well, Redeemer. And may God make us merciful to doubters and skeptics as we see in Christ himself. Shall we pray?